your help tonight. Uh, let us turn in the Word of God to the book of Psalms, the Psalm 39. We've been working our way through the Psalms uh, on a sort of ad hoc basis. We've been taking a different Psalm now and again, and, and, and we're currently just going through some of, some of these Psalms. So, um, we're, we're coming to Psalm 39. We've been doing these in the prayer meetings, but I was looking at Psalm 39, which follows on from 38, and we were looking at 38 on Tuesday, on Wednesday night past. And uh, it's a psalm that has, uh, I've always found a very moving psalm, and I think it's really appropriate for the gospel. There's plain, straightforward gospel warnings here. And so we're going to just meditate upon this psalm uh, tonight. Psalm 39, to the chief musician, even to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, Make me to know mine end, and the measure of my days what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches, and knoweth not who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Amen. We know that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his inspired and infallible word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come into your presence. We pray for your help. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your spirit. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. There is no volume in the world quite like the book of Psalms. The ability of the book of Psalms to communicate with our feelings and with our emotions are profound. The Psalms relate the, the depth of suffering, the depth of pain, not so much that the human body is capable of, but the pain and suffering that the human mind is capable of experiencing. And whatever valley we pass through in life, whatever fear we have, there is a voice of empathy for us in the Psalms. When we read the Psalms, it is as if God takes out His hand and He touches us 
because we really feel that God understands everything that we are going through as we read this volume. You see, the reason why the Psalms are so powerful is that unlike books written by men, and men and women have their books, and they have their books of advice, and, and, and they have some manual how to counsel us whenever we're in distress, and some are helpful, some are not helpful. Some may help one person and not another, but the book of Psalms will help all of us. And there is a message for every person individually, because it's a miraculous book. It is a book written by God Himself, and God understands human nature in a way that defies all our comprehension, because we look at human nature from the perspective of a, a sinner. God looks at human nature from the perspective of His throne of holiness. And He knows everything, and He sees everything. And there's nothing that is hidden from Him. And then, to crown it all, we have the Son of God at God's right hand, and He is a man. And He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was tempted in every point like as we are yet without sin. And we get a sense of Christ's love and empathy, sympathy, as we read the Psalms. As David, the most prolific writer of the Psalms, as he penned his words, he was sometimes afraid. He was sometimes sick. He was sometimes betrayed. He was sometimes repentant. He was sometimes chastened. And as we noticed on Wednesday night past in the previous psalm, he was sometimes broken. Because Psalm 38 verse 8 says, I am feeble and sore broken. Yet still, in the midst of all his alarms, he learned to trust. And indeed, his troubles and his sorrows they taught him to trust. This psalm is good in as much as it gives us some reasons why we need to trust God, why it is important to trust, why it's important to keep trusting. In this psalm, David is suffering, David is grieving, but there is a pivot that turns his mind from real anxiety and from complaining to optimism and to grace. And what is the pivot upon which this psalm turns? It is the verse 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in Thee. Now, this is always going to bring about a change in a man or a woman. Whenever a person learns to trust, it doesn't change our natural circumstances. It doesn't introduce some kind of miraculous intervention into the minutiae of human affairs. But what it does do is it gives us a different mindset. It gives a different heart. And it gives us peace in the midst of the storm. That's what trusting does. And that's why we sang that hymn earlier. Out of Christ without a Savior, with no hope nor refuge nigh, 
Can it be, O blessed Savior, one without thee dares to die? And I pity you tonight, if you are without Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted him as your Savior, you're facing all of the darkness of this world, with all of the foreboding, with all of the uncertainty, with all of the suffering that comes our way, and yet you don't have trust in God. You don't have faith in God. You might say, I do have trust. No, you don't. Because if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've ignored God and you've spent your life doing that. To face the miseries and grief of this world without faith is a tragedy and is the greatest of all tragedies. Why do you need to trust? Why is it important to trust? Why is it important to trust God? What reasons does this psalm give us as to why we need to trust? The first reason is anxiety. Anxiety teaches us to trust God. Look at verses 2 and 3. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. He was thinking. He wasn't talking. In fact, he was determined not to think. He was determined not to talk, not to speak. He was determined to think. You see, he said in verse 1, you know, I'm not going to sin with my tongue. I'm going to keep my mouth with a bridle. So whatever he was facing, there were people watching to see what David would say. And he didn't want to say the wrong thing. And he didn't want to say words that would bring his God into disrepute before the wicked. And so he started to think. Whatever he had faced, whatever he had experienced, he found it a really difficult thing just to focus his mind upon his trouble. It caused him intense anxiety. The way in which he describes this anxiety of mind, he talks about sorrow being stirred within him. Actually, Matthew Henry calls this a funeral psalm. He believed that David had buried someone near to him, someone close to him. Perhaps he had. Certainly, as we look at the psalm, you get a sense, as we'll see in a few moments, that he was certainly thinking about the brevity of life, and there's no time for thinking about the brevity of life quite like a funeral. We begin to think about our own mortality as we face the death of one that is near to us. And perhaps he had just buried someone, and therefore he had wrote this psalm expressing his views and his feelings. His sorrow was stirring. And then you look at verse 3, his heart is hot. His heart, heart is hot. While it was musing, the word musing, it means to think. Actually, musing is a great word. It means to think, turn things over in our minds. The word amusement, you see the word muse there in amusement? But it is preceded with the letter A. You know what the letter A means? 
it means to be without. Someone that uses the, the letter A in classic language, if you put that before something, you're, you're saying that thing doesn't exist. So amusement literally means not to think. And we live in a world that's full of amusement. People want to be entertained. They don't want to think about the things that really matter. They want to eradicate it all. They want to be happy in the shallowest sense possible. That really is what amusement means. But David was not being amused here. He was musing. He was thinking. But the more he thought and the more he turned the matter over in his mind, the fire burned. So there was a, a fire burning in his heart and his soul. It could have been a fire of grief. Could have been a fire caused by something else. And perhaps you tonight have a fire burning in your heart. Something you haven't shared. Something you haven't talked about. But it robs you of your sleep by night. And by day, it stalks your every move. And lays its hand upon you. And it's not easy to bear. And the real lesson here is this. No matter how much we think, we'll never solve our own problems. We'll never bring ourselves to peace. Going inside our minds and turning things over and trying to work problems out, it won't give us peace. Sometimes it just plunges us into greater despair. Greater anxiety because we're thinking horizontally all the time. We're on the one level. There's only one answer. Anxiety teaches us that the human mind doesn't have the answers, that the human heart doesn't have the answers. Anxiety teaches us that man cannot give us peace. Anxiety teaches us that rather than looking along the one level, We've got to start looking upward. Therefore, David said in this verse 7, And now, O Lord, what wait I for? What am I doing? I need to start trusting you. And it is only by trusting God we can experience the love, the joy that the Prince of Peace brings. And what he gives is never shallow. It's never fleeting. It's always lasting. Because we then will drink from the well. Never runs dry. There are lots of people drinking from wells that are running dry all the time. And therefore they look for something else. Something else. Something else to satisfy them. Things of this life never give us hope. But Christ, He satisfies. We need to trust God, not in ourselves. But then there's another reason here why we need to trust God. Anxiety teaches us we need to trust God, but mortality also teaches us that we need to trust God. I said that there are clear indicators that perhaps this is a funeral psalm. And certainly as we come to verses 4 through to 6, that becomes very apparent. Lord, make me to know 
mine end and the measure of my days what it is that I may know how frail I am. Lord, he said, help me to understand life. Help me to understand the measure of my days. Help me to understand how long I have left, how brief life is. I need to get a handle of this. I need to know how frail I am. I need to know what life is all about. It is a good request because the temptation is just to carry on living and working without a thought of eternity, without a thought of dying, to live as if we'll never die. Many people think like that. There is an inscription in the walls of a house in Cheshire, and this house was erected in 1836 and must have been built by a Christian. You would weep if your life was limited to one month. Yet you laugh while you know not. It may be restricted to a day. And what truth there is in that. If any person here got the news that you would have a month left to live, it would be devastating, and so it would. But yet, perhaps you're carrying on living. And for all you know, you might only have a day left. You're only a heartbeat away from the grave. That's all any of us are. Yet why is it that we ignore that fact? We live as if that is a non-fact. And yet it's the, the grimmest of all facts. That death is just around the corner. You see, the message of mortality preaches that our own funeral march is drawing closer But the message of Scripture preaches an even sober message of eternity, of heaven and hell and the final judgment. One day, life will be gone forever. One day, the familiar chair will be empty. One day, we will have crossed the final river to meet God. And we will continue living either in heaven or in hell. We'll be out into the changeless, endless eternity. David wanted to be grounded. He wanted to be realistic. He wanted to regulate his life accordingly. He wanted to know how frail he was. This is a, a sensible philosophy of life. And there are two words that David uses here to describe this philosophy of life. One is brevity. He doesn't use the word brevity, but it's here. We can, we can see it. He said in verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. You've made my days as an handbreadth. You see, ask God the question, what's the measure of my life? Can, can you measure my life, Lord? And the answer he got was, your life is just the breadth of a hand. That's all. The time you have, the breadth of a hand. Now, that's not a large span. It's a very small measurement. Remember what James said? What is your life, he said? It's just like a vapor. Pure for a little time and then vanisheth away. The book of Job uses the metaphor of the weaver's shuttle. The weaver's shuttle was constantly crossing the loom, flying back and forward across the loom, fast, swift. Job said, our days are just like the weaver's shuttle. 
They go so quickly. Even the longest of lives are a blink, slipping all so quickly past from the cradle to the grave. And therefore, David said, mine age is as nothing before thee. My age, he said, is as nothing. The God who sees a thousand years is one day. For he's the God of eternity. He's timeless. He's changeless. A very long life of a hundred years. There's nothing in the eyes of God. Life is so brief. But then, there is a word that he uses, a very interesting word to describe life. Not only the brevity of it, he uses the word vanity. In this verse 5 as well. And he repeats this in the verse 6. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And this second description of human life is even less encouraging than the first. Everyone knows that life is brief. Everyone knows that life will be gone in a moment. There's nobody that doesn't know this, but we somehow like to think that our lives will have some value. We somehow like to think that somehow we'll be remembered. We somehow like to think that somewhere along the way there'll be some achievement and people will reflect upon that. We're all full of pride. That's, that's the way we are. And even though our lives may be brief, we think, well, wouldn't it be nice if we were remembered? But David says, every man at his best state is altogether Vanity. There is a play of words here that we miss in the English. The Hebrew reader could say it. Every man. The word man here is the name Adam. Every man, that's Adam. At his best, he's vanity. The word vanity is the name Abel. You know what the name Abel means? The name Abel means a breath. And the word vanity is drawn from the Hebrew name Abel, meaning a breath. And what he was saying this here was every, every person at his very best. Adam was that perfect man created by God, but Adam sinned. When he fell, sin came into the world. Adam and Eve, these two boys, they carried so much hope, the hope of all of humanity, all of the future rested upon these two boys. But all those hopes were broken, they were dashed. Abel lying dead in the field, a life so short. Cain, forced to go out from the presence of the Lord, they never saw him again. Looking upon the bloodied corpse of their son, murdered by their other son. They saw something they never saw before. They had to dig a grave. They had to bury that boy, oh, what heart brokenness there was, what tears Eve must have shed, how the two of them must have reflected upon the disasters that they had brought upon their own home and upon their own family. They learned that day that life is only a breath. Every man at his best, he's altogether vanity. And David is saying, we're all like this. Every one of us are like this at our best. We're empty. Solomon 
was perhaps thinking of his father's words whenever he wrote, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Emptiness, emptiness. All is empty because what is a breath to something that quickly disappears. And that's life. And just think about the proud heart of man. Gathering up riches. Gathering up riches. How many there are like that? They're living for the, the pound in their pocket. Living for what they have. Living for material possessions. Living for home. Living for the land. Living for the farm. Living for the business. Living for this world. Gathering it up. One day we'll be gone. And there'll be somebody there. And you'll be forgot about. And that is what David is saying. Every man at his best. He's vanity. He's emptiness. And therefore he uses this word sila in verse 5. It's a pause. Just think about that. Just don't rush on reading. Think about the importance of what I am saying. Think about life. The uncertainty of life. The unpredictability of life. The abject emptiness of life. This is life without God. That's what it is. It's just an existence. At one time before atheistic humanism overtook our culture, even the most secular of writers, they reflected these kinds of values. For example, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Shakespeare, in a very famous set of lines, depicted life as the king told it. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Perhaps Shakespeare had in his mind the 90th Psalm. We spend our years as a tale that is told. It's a bleak message. But that's what life is. If we don't know Christ, it's bleak. January is a bleak month. A lot of people feel despondent in January. And the bills start coming in. Christmas is over. The year's ahead. But life without Christ is bleaker still. And if you take the gospel out of the equation, if you take the hope that is in Christ out of the equation, what have we but vanity? That is all there is. But thank God there is hope. And the sheer emptiness and nothingness of life without Christ, a life that faces eternity without a Savior, a life that faces death and judgment without a Savior. This teaches us more than anything that we need to place our hope in God. Just think about life. What, what is it without Christ? What is it without the gospel? What is it without saving faith? It's the most miserable existence imaginable. And even though you may not feel you're miserable, you are. Because you're not looking to the Lord. 
It's the greatest lie the devil ever told. Well, he tells a number of great lies. One of them is just put salvation off to another time. Everything a preacher says is right, but you can leave it until another time. And yet you may be dead tomorrow. That's a terrible lie. But another lie is this, that you're really happy in your sin. You're happy with this life. You don't need to listen to that gospel message. But you only think you're happy because you're dead in your sin. And you don't know reality. And this is reality, that one day you will stand before God, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And you look back on the years of time and how you squandered them. How you were in the gospel meeting. How you heard the gospel. How you heard the way of salvation. And yet you said no to Jesus Christ. Over and over again. And you'll stand before God and you realize. What have I done with my life? Oh the natural mortality that we face. In this sinful wicked world. Teaches us that we must put our trust in God. And in the gospel. That we must take Christ as our saviour. That we must go to the foot of that old cross. Because that is the only place where there's ever going to be hope. And why have you not done that? There's something else that teaches us to trust God here. It is our iniquity. Our sinfulness. As soon as he says these words, my hope is in thee, he starts to think about his own sins. Deliver me, he says, from all my transgressions. It says in verse 10, Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Selah. There we have the word selah again. In this world, with all of its anxieties, as we face the brevity of life, as we face the vanity of life, we are taught more and more that we are sinners. And the core reason why we need to trust God is our sinfulness. The core reason why this world is such a difficult world is because of our sinfulness. And we are all experiencing the full effects of God's curse. Every year as it goes past, we see the curse of God unfolded in deaths and funerals and sicknesses and tragedies and wars and famines. This world is such a difficult place because this world is suffering the blow of God's hand. David said, I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. And what the Bible says about Adam and Eve and how they were in perfection and then they left Eden and suddenly the thistles and the briars began to grow and they had to cultivate the ground. The world became a radically different place. It became the kind of place that we can recognize today because sin had come. And so, David understands that. He realizes that he must trust God because he is a sinner. And only God can deal with his sin. On this wall, we have this question, what must I do to be saved? The question that was asked by the Philippian jailer. And God works in different people's lives to bring them to faith. And the Philippian jailer, well, God got the cannon out. And God fired his salvos into this man's life, and it shook him to the core. He was a hard, rough, tough man. He was a man who felt nothing would break him. And then the earthquake came, and the doors of the prison swung open, and he discovered that the prisoners, their shackles had been unloosed. And he lifted the sword. He was prepared 
to do the unthinkable. And then he heard a voice. Do thyself no harm, we are safe. And suddenly he realized that God had intervened in his life and this preacher that he had beaten and thrown into prison was now the means of his salvation. Or rather the message this preacher preached was the means of his salvation. And he knew he had to be saved. He knew he must come to God. And in the midst of that dark, dark night of desperation, the light began to shine into his soul. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, sin is such a destructive thing. Sin binds, sin chains, sin addicts, sin divides, sin ruins homes, sin destroys families, sin generates mistrust, it causes violence and mayhem, it creates bitterness and fear, it destroys our health, it distorts our thinking, ultimately it ruins us for eternity. That's what sin does. And David said here in verse 11, when thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Sin teaches us that our beauty is as nothing. We are just corrupt before God. The jailer discovered that on that night. And then he began trusting. Have you seen your sin tonight? Have you got to look into your own mortality? Into the futility of living without God? Will you not trust the Lord? David the close of the psalm, he breaks forth into a, a great appeal. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. I'm a stranger before you. I'm a sojourner. I'm only a sojourner through this world. Spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Lord, intervene before death comes. It was a prayer that God heard. The prayer of the sinner that comes to God. God will not despise that prayer. You come to the Lord and you look to him tonight. The Lord will save you. And he'll do it now. Why trust God? Why not trust God? He is all there is. Christ is the only one who is the true love.